as the seven to tens are making their way towards their own Bible study, I want to invite you to open your Bibles as we uh, continue in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we will find ourselves today in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and the main passage today will be Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 through 20. I'm just going to read verse 10 at the beginning, but we will get through all of those verses together today. As we think about the idea of what do we gain from money? What do we gain from money? So I encourage you to turn there, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And when you're there, say, I'm there. Okay. Let me read and then we'll pray. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10 says this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity, a vapor. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I loved hearing your people sing of your faithfulness. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can be trusted with everything that goes through our hearts and our minds. Everything that we will ever encounter, we can trust you. And so, Father, I pray that right now you might bring to mind the areas where we are tempted to say, I don't know if I can trust you. And that, Father, we would lay it at your feet. We would look to Calvary and know your exceedingly great love. And that, God, you might cause trust to well up in our hearts. Father, with something so practical as money, we ask that you would grip our hearts with your grace and your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hold in my hand, what is it? Anybody see? One buck, that's right. A dollar. Pretty underwhelming, probably right now, for some of you. But it is pretty fascinating. If this were a $10,000 bill, I might get eyebrows. And you might be wondering how might that go from your hand to mine. What is it about paper and ink? What is it about coins, silver, gold, that does something in our hearts? It's kind of weird, isn't it? Like, depending on the change of the dollar amount, your heart can get excited. 
You can also get kind of fearful or frustrated. It incites all kinds of things up in our hearts. It's just money. But it's money. This is the world in which we live. Why can money make us judge others? Or be jealous of others? Why can't it stir up fear or anger? What is going on with this thing that we know is money? It's just paper. It's just numbers on an app reflecting a bank account. We think with more of it, our problems might be solved. We think that with it, you get what you want when you want. It helps. If you don't have as much, it can incite fear. If you have a lot of it, it can incite fear of losing it. I've talked to those or read about those who even after amassing as much as they could, they still seem pretty anxious and not as happy as you would think they are. Their house, three times bigger than yours, yet their happiness doesn't seem to be three times as large. What is this? Then there's me and you. We have financial worries. This season in our country is really unique. Groceries are obnoxiously expensive. Do I get an amen? Okay. Gas. Why in the world does it go down only to go back up again? Like it's only supposed to go one direction in my brain. Like keep going below three. Okay, let's hit twos. Let's keep going. And now it's up to like over three and a quarter. What is going on? I don't like it. There's an increase in almost everything. Clothing, food. I went to cookout the other day. Nine bucks for a cookout tray with no frills. Like, that used to be what it cost when I got a milkshake with that stuff. Nine bucks, that is criminal. It's not okay. And I do like cookout. Those are just kind of the everyday things. But what happens when things break? Costs you weren't expecting. The car was running just fine. Oh wait, not so much. The heat and air unit was doing really well right up until you needed it in the winter or in the summer. Some of you, you're thinking about schooling for your kids and you realize that homeschool is not really a free option. It still costs some money, especially as your kids get older. Even if you're in public school and you're not paying as much for school, you realize, man, I did not factor in all these extracurriculars. I didn't factor in the sports and the music and the art and all of the different ways you can travel to do all those things. Your budget just begins to expand and stretch and then it feels like it breaks. Money seems so scarce but so necessary for life. It also explains why 40% of marriages that end in divorce attribute money as the cause of the divorce. 
it can create some significant tension. It can sink a friendship. It can split a church. People fight over it. People literally kill for it. People freak out when it's low. They use people to get more of it. What in the world is going on? If I were to describe this about anything else, you would think that thing is toxic and we are crazy. Like if I just said we did that over Skittles, you'd be like, well, that's dumb. But now I say we do it over money and it makes more sense. No, it doesn't. Why does this have so much power? And power is the right word. Because have you noticed that the more you have of it, the more power seems to come with it? More influence. So people attach status to money. The car you drive, the clothes you wear, the neighborhood you live in or the house you have, the position you have at work, the title you carry. People will sing about money. Money, 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 money. You know, it, it, you just look them up. They're all over the place. Because money is so important to bring you what you want, right? Which is power, influence, fame, peace, await. Does it really bring the greatness that we long for? I'm not so sure. Why does money and the power it brings seem to make us think about ourselves and others differently? Think about how you might treat someone. If they were looking to give away some of their money and they had enough wealth to take care of all your debt or to provide you with the car you need, or to pay for your kids' college education, and they were coming over to your house. How would you treat them? You've heard the, the statement, you'd roll out the red carpet. Whether that's figurative or literal, you know, you might even try both. You know, I don't know. It's, the point is, you go over and above to be hospitable. You show them great respect. You hang on their every word. You listen. You honor them. You treat them with, with care and kindness. You don't want to blow it, right? But then we ask, why don't we treat our lower or middle class neighbor the same way? Or our family? Or the poor, those who are struggling, can't make ends meet because they don't have as much power or money, and yet we do it. Not to mention the fact that, did you smell what I was smelling when I was describing how we might treat someone with resources? That ain't love, that's usury. And all of a sudden we realize the problem is probably less the money and more what's going on in our heart that we think money can give us. What if we were created for something more? Is more money or more notoriety really our goal? Will money satisfy us and make us happy? Can we really purchase peace and joy? 
What if the answer is no, then what? What if life was full, not by having more money, but by having more of Jesus? What if a really full life was not climbing a ladder towards notoriety, but coming down from the ladder and serving our neighbor and loving them as ourselves? What if that was a full life? What if life was full in joy and peace, not by working to have more, but by being faithful in what the world thinks is small and trusting God with the outcome? This is the message of Ecclesiastes. There is more to life than our possessions, than our status, than our fame, and the power that we might have. Ecclesiastes is redefining greatness for us. And so Ecclesiastes teaches us these three things about money. Money does not satisfy. Two, trust God to satisfy. Code word, enjoy God. Three, enjoy dreaming small. Money does not satisfy, trust God to satisfy, and enjoy dreaming small. Let's look at the text. Number one, money does not satisfy. Where do I get that? Thankfully, it says it really clearly. Sometimes in Ecclesiastes, you got poetry, you kind of got to think on it, meditate on it. This one's pretty straightforward. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10. He who loves money will not be what? Yes, that was wonderful. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is a vapor. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Money does not satisfy. How does the teacher here in Ecclesiastes know this to be true? Well, if you remember a few weeks ago, preached a sermon on pleasure, we dove into Ecclesiastes chapter 2, where you read these words, verse 7, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been in, before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Money can make you famous and it can give you power. That's what he's saying. Verse 10, and whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep them from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. Verse 11, then I considered that all that my hands had done and the toil and effort that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, a vapor, striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He had it all and still declared it as vapor. Now, Ecclesiastes is honest about money. There are some benefits to money. Money is not evil. It's just not ultimate. Ecclesiastes 7.12, it says, For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. What's that mean? It means that it acknowledges that through money, you can buy certain things that provide for you, right? Money does provide for you food, clothing, shelter. 
I guess if you want to take um, protection to its nth degree, armored tanks or bodyguards, right? Like money can do those things if you got enough of it, right? So it can provide protection, but it serves only as a picture of something deeper, like wisdom. Ecclesiastes 10.19 says this. It talks very favorably about three things, bread, wine, and money. It says bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. What does that mean? It doesn't necessarily mean what you thought it meant, which is it solves all your problems. That's not what it means. It means money talks. It has a reply. Specifically, it has a reply for everything. Like, okay, I would like this, then money can provide that. But it also must be tempered with the verse that we read, although money can give you things, we've already just read, money cannot satisfy. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. Let's dive back in it again. It says, he who loves money will not be satisfied. This word for love all throughout the Old Testament. You go to Genesis 24, and it talks about a husband's love for his wife. You go to Genesis 22, talks about Abraham's love for his only son Isaac as he's about to take him up a mountain and sacrifice him. There's something about money that draws our heart to love it, or this verse doesn't make any sense. And to love it like you would a spouse or a child. This word for love is even used to describe our love for God in Deuteronomy 7. And the love of God, the love that God has for us. It is something of deep affection. That if we give that kind of love to money, it is dangerous. It says that it's a vapor. It's a vapor. Money cannot satisfy. It's a vapor. Now, some of you might be like, well, I don't love money. I love what money can get me. Well, Ecclesiastes keeps going. Verse 11, when it says, the teacher continues, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. What is he saying? Money can get you things. Those are the goods. But when the goods increase, so does the time it takes to take care of them. Or, if you're really wealthy, like Solomon, so does the amount of money you have to pour into people to take care of the things that you have. So, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. You can get so much, but yet when you own them, you struggle to enjoy them. He even says, what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? I don't know if you know, in low grad, P.J. Tucker. P.J. Tucker is an NBA basketball star, and he is known not simply for playing basketball. He is known for his shoe collection. P.J. Tucker has over 5,000 shoes and still is collecting shoes. Now just do a little bit of math. 
13 and a half years it would take you to wear 5,000 shoes if you wore one a day. Well, surely you're going to wear two a day. So now you're looking at at least seven years before you wear all your shoes. What's the point? The point is not to wear them. When you have that many, the point's to look at them and to tell others that you have them. Floyd Mayweather, he is known for collecting cars like P.J. Tucker is known for collecting shoes. Floyd Mayweather, a boxer, has about a hundred cars. Five Rolls Royces, four Ferraris, four Bugattis, a Mercedes McLaren, a Bentley Coupe, and many others. But he doesn't have the most. Do you know that the Sultan of Brunei, <laughs> I had no clue, one, Brunei existed. It is a country in near the South China Sea. It is surrounded by Malaysia, neighbors Indonesia, that's Brunei. Brunei is led by the Sultan of Brunei. The Sultan of Brunei, no exaggeration, has 7,000 cars worth $5 billion. But do you also know he has the largest house in existence? 2.15 million square feet. Over 1,700 rooms. And over 200 bathrooms. What in the world? How many years would it take you to visit each room? That just sounds exhausting. Ecclesiastes says it's a vapor. You get to a point when once you get things, you're just getting things to have things. To say you got them. And all you can really do is look at it. You know by asking the question, when he says, what advantage has the owner but to see them with his eyes? Embedded in the question is the conclusion. Don't you think that's a waste? He's saying. Isn't there more to life? Now all of us sitting here, we feel like we are not in danger of any of this. Because we might be living in a 1,500 square foot apartment or a 900 square foot apartment that we pay way too much money for and we might have one beat up broken down car. I'm not worried about this. This is not with me. But did you see what I did? Floyd Mayweather and the Sultan of Brunei. What did I do? I compared them. This is what money does. It fools us into thinking that if we're not on the extremes, we don't have a love of money that's obsessive. And yet the dissatisfaction that can control the heart comes because we compare ourselves to the one more thing. I just want one car. That's got to be much better than the guy who's got 7,000. And that's not how Jesus thinks about it. He thinks about What's the allegiance of your heart? Because he who loves money, whether his love is a Chevy Malibu or a Bugatti, it doesn't matter. The question is, 
does his love for that thing rival his love for his creator? And he who loves money just needs to know on the front end it will not satisfy. It will not satisfy. So as the great philosophers ACDC tell us, come on, come on, listen to the money. Listen to the money talk. Money does talk, it seems, weirdly enough to us. It says something like, if you have it, you can buy it. If you have it, you have superiority over. You can dominate. If you have it, you can own it. And yet, all the while, Ecclesiastes says, no, 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 no. It's owning you. It's exhausting you. It's dominating you. Because what you think you are buying is a lie. You cannot buy satisfaction, love, joy, or peace. It's not for sale. Try all you want. And it will not happen. Money tells you that if you don't have it, you should be afraid. Afraid that your needs will not be met, but even deeper, afraid that you are not somebody. Connected to money and satisfaction is this issue of status and importance. Money tells you to have more of it is to be more yourself, an identity. To be more powerful is to be more significant. To amass all the pleasures you crave is to be satisfied. And you think, if I have no financial worries, I will have no worries at all. That's not reality. It's lying. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Ecclesiastes 6-7 tells us explicitly, all the toil of man is for his mouth to consume, to consume, to consume, and yet his appetite is not what? Satisfied. Paul warns us. Paul warns us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, but with godliness, with contentment is great gain. This is what Paul wants us to look at. This is what Jesus wants us to look at. That there is an issue that you can be content no matter whether you have a lot or whether you have little. This is an issue of the heart. And he goes on to say, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. One of my favorite quotes from Pastor John Piper is, There are no U-Hauls behind hearses. You brought nothing in, you can't take anything out. And Paul gets his wisdom right here. When he quotes this, he gets his wisdom from Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Look at verse 13 of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 with me. And it says this, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but has nothing in his hand. 
As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so he shall go. What gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much anxiety or vexation and sickness and anger. What are we being taught here? He worked hard for his money. Then because of a bad investment, and there's no indication that this was sin, it was just an investment that went south. He now is a father of his son, and he has nothing to give his son. And Ecclesiastes is saying, this is a broken world. It's a broken world. You can have money, and it can be gone the next day. It's a broken world. And so he goes on to say, you brought nothing in, you'll take nothing out. It's the very wisdom that Paul was giving us. So don't amass for yourself here on this earth as a means of satisfaction. It cannot do it. But there's a contentment to be found in our God. And so he even says in verse 17, all the days he eats in darkness with much vexation and sickness and anger, you can work for money and have a ton of it and still be anxious and still be angry and still be sick when you eat. Money cannot buy you peace, lasting joy, or satisfaction. Paul finishes his warning in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and then we go to where the sun breaks through the clouds. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says this, But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction because the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What does this verse mean? It doesn't mean that at the root of all of our sin is this issue of money. What it does mean is at the root of all of our sin is the same disordered love that would take money and raise it above people or would take money and raise it above God. And that kind of love is at the core of all sin. It's what Augustine calls disordered loves. Again, money is not evil. It's just not ultimate. And when we take something and make it ultimate that's not God, it will eat us alive. This passage says people have in their desire to be rich, they have fallen into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And because it's juxtaposed with this wandering away from the faith, this ruin and destruction means that if you attach your heart so tightly to money and reject God, it can lead you into hell. It can lead you to run away from the living God. Not that you lose your salvation. That's not anywhere in the scriptures. 
but that you might prove you were never his. This is why God has instituted that his people, the church that you give regularly, consistently, sacrificially, generously, because it's not only an investment in a common gathering and a common love for one another and a common mission. It is a declaration with hands that my treasure is not in my money. My treasure is in Christ. This is why he's built it in. Because Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The love of money can pull you away from faith, from daily dependence upon God. And Ecclesiastes 2 tells us, money is not your provider, God is. Ecclesiastes 2 says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Do you see what he did there? If money can't satisfy, who can? God can. If money can't buy me joy or love or happiness, where do I get it? You get it from the hand of God. You get it from God. Ecclesiastes wants us to be really disenfranchised with the pursuit that our world constantly reinforces. If you have money, you're someone. The more you get, the happier you'll be. The Bible says completely the opposite. It says money will never satisfy only God can. So trust Him. Trust Him. That's why the conclusion of Ecclesiastes chapter 12 is fear God and keep His commandments. You can trust Him. You can trust Him with everyday things. Now, we're tempted to read the book of Ecclesiastes like it's a book in and of itself. Like it's a standalone. Ecclesiastes is like chapter 10 of a 30 chapter book. There's more to end the story. And sometimes you can just look at Ecclesiastes and you can become miserable and depressed. It's never meant to be read solely on its own. It's meant to be read by what's before and what's after it. And in the Hebrew Bible, you've got something that comes before it which says, Psalm 23, 1, The Lord is my shepherd, what? I shall not want. Where are our wants satisfied? In the Lord who cares for us like a shepherd does sheep. You look at Psalm 84.10 and you read these words. For one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Let's just process it. I would rather be Last I checked, doorkeepers, they don't get a lot of publicity. They're not the ones that get a lot of press for being the most impressive. That's the point. 
I would rather be ordinary and forgotten by the rest of the world if I could be in the presence of my God. Why would he say that? Because one day in the presence of my God shows me where true satisfaction rests. One day is better than a thousand elsewhere. Test our hearts with this. One day in the unfiltered presence of God is better than a thousand days of vacation. It's better than a thousand days of retirement. It's better than a thousand Ferraris or thousands of thousands of dollars in your bank account. One day with Him is better. And so David is saying, it doesn't matter what position I have. If I have Christ, I have everything. Because being with Him is better. Being with Him is better. So Ecclesiastes is telling us, when he says, fear God and keep His commandments, he is reminding us, money will not satisfy. But our God, who is the giver of joy, He is our joy. He is the one that we long for. He is our daily provision. Now, have you ever wondered? I pray a lot about finances. I don't know if you do. I do. Have you ever wondered why it doesn't just come all at once? Okay. I've got two kids in college and my wife is going back to school. I'm praying for money for college. I'm praying for it. Have you ever wondered why, like, why can't, like, there be some distant uncle I never realized, and they give, like, all of a sudden, this is an inheritance. In the, in the mail, there's a check that pays for everybody's college, right? Like, God can do that. I have zero doubt in my mind. But he has not done that for me. I don't know if he's done that for you. He hasn't done that for me. Have you ever wondered why that is? Have you ever wondered why it doesn't just like happen? It just seems like it'd be easier, right? It's because we're all two-year-olds. Here's what I mean. Some of you are parents of two-year-olds. You've heard it called the terrible twos. There's a reason for that. It's because two-year-olds love their independence and now they can tell you about it. They can tell you no. They can tell you that they want to rule their own lives. But here's the problem with a two-year-old. They're two. Their brains aren't fully developed. Their life experience is pretty low. I think we would all agree. Their hearts have not been changed to Jesus. They are foolish. They are not wise, and yet they want to rule their own lives. They think, why don't you just give me what I'm asking for? It would be so much better. And why don't you give it to me all at once? That would be so much better. They get angry at you for withholding certain things from them because they think they know what is better, so they throw fits. Parents, just side note, their fits are not cute. They need to be disciplined. That's what loving parents do. Side note over. But what happens when an angry two-year-old starts banging his head on the floor like I used to do to get his way. Yes, I did that. I don't remember it, <laughs> and it might explain a lot. 
But what happens when the kid hurts himself by banging his head on the floor? The mom or the dad picks him up and holds him and says, Son, you can trust your mom or your dad. You can trust us. The child doesn't know what it needs. But what it, what it needs is to be able to trust that there is someone who cares for their needs, who loves them, who is present, who is attentive. The child needs to know the security of one they can trust. Much more than all those other things that two-year-old thinks it needs. We are two years old. And many times the reason we don't get that phenomenal, what we think, answer to prayer, kind of lottery winning type check in the mail is because money has never been the point. Trusting that our Heavenly Father loves us and is secure and safe and trustworthy day by day, that's what we were created for. And honestly, sadly, I don't pray about things as often when I don't think I'm needy. We don't want to admit it. But we need to learn each day that we can trust our God. This is the story of manna in the Bible. Do you realize... 45 days, 45 days after millions of Israelites oppressed by the Egyptians saw the Red Sea split, the ground dry up, they walk across, they turn back and look and their mighty Egyptian army coming after them now all of a sudden gets stuck in the ground. They get destroyed as the waters come back over. The Israelites are delivered and yet 45 days after one of the most miraculous things anyone could ever see, we find them hangry. That is complaining that they're in the wilderness and they have no food. And we've all been there. What is going on? Do you know what God does in response? He says, I'm going to provide you food. And he gives them something called manna, which means, what is it? And he rains it down. They were complaining against Moses and Aaron for not providing the food. And Moses is like, it's not my, like, I can't do this. If you're complaining against me, you're actually complaining against God. And God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you just the amount of food that you need for every single day. And then when it comes to the Sabbath, the day that you need to observe to show that I am your provider, I'm going to give you two days on Friday that will last you all the way till Sunday morning because the Sabbath was Saturday. So why did he do it that way? It literally says in Exodus 16 that he was doing that to see, it says, 
to test them to see whether they will walk in God's law or not. Will they trust God? Will they trust Him? He did it to show how much He loved them to meet their needs. He did it to show that He is powerful enough to bring food. But He did it to say, do you trust me day by day? This is why my Savior says, pray like this. Give us today our daily bread. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's inviting you. When you're anxious about your food, when you're anxious about your bills, He wants you to walk into His presence so that you will know that you are loved. You will remember how much He cared for you. You know He can be trusted because He sent His only Son to die in your place. He sent Jesus to suffer when he had all the wealth of heaven. Why would our faithful high priest Jesus die a sinner's death? Why would he voluntarily endure the betrayal and the suffering? Why would he leave the riches of glory to become the impoverished for people like us who wouldn't appreciate it and betray him and kill him? Why would he do that? Because of his great love. The great love with which he has for us. And so, because he loves us so much, it says in Romans 8.32, if he did not spare his only son, but gave him over for us all, how will he not also in Christ graciously give us all things? He wants us to trust him. Day by day trusting. He wants us to enter into his presence with all of our fears and say, God, Give us today our daily bread. That means two things. You're the provider and I am not. And it means give me what I need for today, which also means I'm trusting you to do the same thing tomorrow. I'm trusting you with my future. But he wants the interaction to happen in prayer. Not in transaction, but in communion. Because God wants our hearts. He wants us to have a love for Him. Love for anything else will disappoint and destroy. Jesus says, when He's telling us not to worry about money in Luke 12, He says, consider the ravens. He he wants you to look at birds. And He says, they neither sow nor reap. They neither storehouse nor barn. And yet, God feeds them. Matthew says your heavenly Father feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you by being... I love this. This makes me laugh. And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Luke adds here, If then you're not able to do this small thing such as that, why are you anxious for the rest? To me, that's the very reason I'm anxious. Because I can't create more time to make more money, right? Like, it doesn't seem to work for me. Like, he's saying, if you can't do a small thing like extend the day into 25, 26 hours, then you're just showing you cannot provide for yourself. You're not the ultimate provider. I am. God says, I am. So then he goes on to say in Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness And all these things will be added to you.
Money cannot satisfy. Enjoy God fully by trusting Him to satisfy you. And that sets you free to enjoy dreaming small. Be faithful in the small things and trust the Lord to provide you with everything you need. What do I mean by small things? It's what the world counts as small, but what God counts as eternal. Seek first His kingdom, His righteousness, His ways, and you trust Him with the outcome. I'm reading a book. The title of the book is Dream Small. That's where I got the concept by a man named Seth Lewis. I actually have several copies out there. I encourage you to look at it. I've read it pretty quickly. It is a wonderful book. When I shared it with my family, I was doing family devotions and I shared something from it. And as we were sitting after a meal doing family devotions, I said, I've been reading a book called Dream Small. And one of my kids was like, why are all the Christian books backwards? And I was just like, that's so brilliant. Like, because that's how it is. The world would say, dream big. And Jesus flips it on his head. What if we were created to dream small? Tim Keller has a book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. The world says, only think about you. And the Bible says there's a freedom in not thinking about yourself so much. It's upside down. It's topsy-turvy. It's God's kingdom. It's why Jim Elliott can say this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's an upside-down kingdom. And in this book, Dream Small, by Seth Lewis, he points out in 1 Timothy 4, and I end with this, that in 1 Timothy 4, we're told, walk in love. Love God. Love your neighbor. This is where you're going to find joy. And then he says something pretty bizarre. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11. And here's what I command you to do, to aspire or have ambition to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands just as we instructed. Do you see how countercultural this is? Have an ambition to live quietly. <laughs> Strive to be faithful, not to be known. It's okay to be ordinary, he's saying. Have an ambition for a quiet, faithful life rather than a big, splash life. He actually thinks that a quiet life of hard work, self-control, obedience to God, and love for others is worth aiming our desires at. Here's a quote from the book. To say something like this, Paul must have had a very different way of seeing the world than we are used to. He must have had a very different way of measuring value and determining what is significant and what a life is for. His own life was big in so many ways, which is why we still talk about him and quote him. But the way he lived it showed us how even a big life can be aimed at the same small dreams he tells us to pursue. It's important to note that his advice 
to others was not to imitate his wide influence or effective strategies or other metric of worldly success, but rather to focus our lives primarily on smaller things that he says matters most. He even tells us to be ambitious about them. He just wants to make sure that we aim the drive and power of our ambitions in the direction of things that matter much more and for much longer than mere fame or money, fortune, or power. And the question is, what are we aiming our lives at? Paul says, don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but set your hope on God who richly provides you everything to enjoy. And then he goes on to say, do good, be rich in good works, be generous, ready to share. That's the small work that we are to give our lives to. Do good, be rich in good works, be generous to sh and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they might take hold of that which is truly life. First, First Timothy 6, 17 through 19. So what is true life? Ecclesiastes tells us this. 518 through 20, the end of our passage. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the labor with which I labor under the sun with the few days of life that God has given me. For this is our lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift from God. For he will not remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. You know what God says to do? When you're free from the love of money and you realize it can't satisfy and God can, go enjoy life. Don't obsess over your possessions. Run into his presence and trust him. But enjoy the meal that we're getting ready to have. Enjoy the fellowship. Enjoy life in the few days that we have on this earth. Because ultimately what we are doing is we want to live small, be faithful in the small things, word, prayer, church, loving our neighbor as ourself, generous with what God has given us because we are storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven that will not rust or destroy. May we trust the Lord with our finances. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for loving us, and I pray. I ask that we would know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. Father, we want the riches of spiritual life. We want the riches of your presence. We want the wealth that moth and rust can't destroy. We want the satisfaction that only you can provide. And so, Father, we ask that in these moments that we have together now, that we would trust you with everything that causes fear. 
Father, I can feel it in my own heart. There's just a confidence in you now. But I also know when I go home and there's an unexpected bill or there's something coming out of nowhere or I remember again the things that made me afraid before, I can be anxious. I pray that with every moment of anxiety, we would run into your presence and we would give all of those fears to you.